Well, grab a copy of scriptures with me and open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you need a copy of the scriptures, our ushers are ready at the door to get one into your hands. So you can just lift your hand up where you are, and they will come right to you at your seat and deliver it to you. We're going to be reading the whole of the chapter, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 16. If you are using a church Bible, it's on page 932. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 to verse 16, Church Bibles, page 962. Hear now what Holy Scripture says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Then must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in a glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spiritual family, which in Christ we who have believed have been adopted into. You call your family a household, the assembled people, a church, a pillar in buttress of the truth. And indeed, we have a great faith of a great Christ who became incarnate, who was 
visibly witnessed, who truly died, and who was fully raised. And Lord God, the scripture admonishes us that right behavior in the household of God follows right belief. And that there is a right place for authority to be able to protect and to promote that for the good of the household of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to understand this, that we may participate as brothers and sisters in the household in a healthy way and that we would have healthy authority who oversees it according to your will. Help us as we endeavor through this text in Jesus' name. Amen. In three occasions we see through 1 Timothy 3, the scripture refer to households. The household of elders and his kids, the household of deacons and their family, and the household of God, the church. And we know that households can be messy. I'm not talking about tidiness. I'm talking about the relationships. I want to introduce you to a, um, a messy household. It's a fictional one. You might know their story. George and Mary were a simple couple, three kids and a dog. Mary stays at home with the kids, and from what we can see, she's like admirable in every way. George, on his hand, is doing his best, but he's really clearly at his wit's end. Just stressed out by work. He cares too much about his reputation and what people think about him. George and Mary have three kids. Their youngest boys, John and Michael, just live in a fairy tale land all day long, playing imagination, pretending they're pirates. It's really encouraged by their older sister, Wendy, too, to the dismay of their dad. Wendy just encourages John and Michael to play and pretend to be pirates, and dad's a little too tightly wound. And whenever he sees these kids and he playing in their blissful ignorance and having fun, it kind of agitates him a little bit. And all George wants Wendy and Michael and John to do is just grow up. Do you guys know which family I'm talking about? Well, Wendy and Michael and John one evening are met by a little boy named Peter Pan and a little fairy named Tinkerbell. And they're told if they think happy thoughts, they can fly away to a magical place where they can always have fun and never grow up. My wife and I tried to watch this with our kids a couple months ago. We couldn't get past the first opening scene because my kids were legitimately scared by the spastic anger of the dad. And it actually frightened them. But then I went back myself and watched a little bit. And I noticed something that I'd never seen before. When Wendy and John and Michael get to Neverland, and they meet the enemy of their youth, Captain Hook. Captain Hook has a striking resemblance in his appearance and his voice to their dad. And I didn't realize, not that I'm trying to over-spiritualize Peter Pan, but <laughs> for these kids, Neverland was an escape for the burden of the unhealthy authority of their tightly wound, stressed-out dad. Not a few people have been hurt by authority. They've been hurt by authority in their own households, and they've been hurt by authority in the household of God. Where parents and pastors, who are supposed to be protectors, 
start acting like plundering pirates. Scripture teaches that authority over God's house will be entrusted to men who demonstrate healthy authority in their own houses. But because of the trouble caused by people who misuse or abuse their authority, it can be hard to trust people in positions of power and trust within a church. Today I want to show you a different and better way and I want to specifically focus on two verses from 1 Timothy 3, verse 4 and verse 5. These verses show us a different and better way for healthy leadership in the church. So what is it? Healthy authority is designed to furnish God's house with goodness and beauty. Even though you may not have experienced that in the way that you think God's word designs, it's possible, it's admirable, and must be aimed for. I want to first persuade you to see and understand the proper place that healthy authority has within the local church. Then, once we understand the proper place that authority has, I want to show you what healthy authority should look like. So what is the proper place that authority should have within the church? There's no shortage of data to prove that trust in institutions and authorities has started to break down. Institutions like marriage and family particularly have eroded over time. But what marriage and family was supposed to preserve, home, a place where you're known and belonged, a place of rest where you're stable and secure, even though there's been a breakdown in marriage and family, the human desire for home has not broken down. It has not eroded. It's still certainly there. People are just looking and exploring it for ways that are undermining and casting off what Christianity and scriptures have held up as the bedrock of society for generations. But God has designed a way in which authority does operate in the church. Paul wrote the letter to 1 Timothy to the church in Ephesus because the house of God and the place of rest and security and stability that it was supposed to be was being threatened. Turn with me to chapter 1 briefly. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. As I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to promote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Healthy leadership is designed to furnish God's house with goodness and beauty. In Ephesus, there were people who brought a different doctrine into God's house that was promoting confusion and chaos rather than good order and the beauty of the redeeming gospel and the relationships. And Paul wrote this letter to help put the house right, to get it in shape. But in order to understand how, what the house of God should look like, we need to understand what Paul describes in verse 4 as the stewardship from God. 
different houses, different homes like to organize and operate their practices in different ways. Or we're trying to instill in our kids that um, dinner isn't just a time to eat, it's a time to be together. So even when you're done eating, you aren't immediately excused because dinner's not just about eating, it's about being together. You probably had some good practices, some unhealthy practices in your home, but we know there's the house, the structure and the people in it, but then there's the culture of the house, how the people relate to one another. Within the church, the household of God is the structure of the people. The stewardship from God is the culture of how God wants us to relate to one another. So what is that? What should it look like? Well, Paul used this idea of the stewardship from God throughout his letters. You can read about it in uh, Colossians 1, in Ephesians 2 and 3. And when Paul describes the stewardship of God, he's often referring to his entrusted role that he has as an apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish believers of Jesus Christ. The early church wasn't as romantic as people make it out to be. Like everything that we read that happened at Pentecost, when like people were together and sharing all things in common, maybe lasted for like a couple weeks. And then there was a lot of problems that persisted. One of those problems was ethnic disunity. It was a real problem in early congregations between Jews and non-Jewish people. See, for these earliest followers of Jesus, the Jewish believers were used to worshiping in such a way that was governed by the law of Moses. And when Jewish believers came to the temple in Jerusalem, which the temple in the Old Testament was often referred to as the house of God, when they came to the temple, they were used to the law of Moses governing um, the Jewish worshipers in a different way than non-Jewish worshipers. The Gentiles had and added restrictions and divisions that prohibited them from the same kind of access that Jewish worshipers had. Now, when Jesus came, preaching the good news of the kingdom, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When Jesus came, he said that something better than the temple had arrived, a new way of worshiping where you wouldn't have to gather to a certain place and a certain building, but all who came on a pilgrimage of faith to Jesus would access him in the same way, without any restrictions or any divisions, not by a law of works, but by a law of grace alone through faith alone. This is the stewardship from God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19 describes it. In the context of the stewardship, Paul says this, For through him, through Jesus, we both, Jew and non-Jew, all people, men and women, rich and poor, for through him we both have access into one spirit to the Father. So then, you, all people in Christ, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. This is the culture that should mark the relationships within God's house. This is the stewardship he established for his church. 
It is a community of adopted believers who share unrestricted, undivided access to worship God and find the full satisfaction and dignity they desire in him. When we see one another in the church, we should not see our differences. We should see our new humanity in Christ. When we see our shared new humanity in Christ, it then will naturally produce for one another the same love and the same harmonious order that we see in God's love for us and in the harmonious order of the Trinity. Didn't Jesus pray for the church that God would make us one as he is one with the Father? This is what the household of God is designed to be. The goodness and beauty of the house built on the foundation of the gospel where we all can be known and loved. Where we can find stability and rest. And as great as that sounds, we know that the church is filled with a lot of troubles. Because our hearts are filled with lots of sinful troubles. And every local church is far from what it could be or should be. But one day Christ will come and he will make all things right. And he will make all things new. So what authority, what place does authority have within God's house now? It's the role of pastors, elders, to promote and to protect the gospel so that healthy authority will furnish God's house with the goodness and the beauty of what we have in Christ together. That's why eldership is a noble task and worth aspiring to. Healthy authority furnishes God's house with goodness and beauty. So what does it look like in practice then? Well, I want to show you from verse 3 and verse 4 three expressions of healthy authority. The right ability, the right aim, and the right approach. Paul's making an argument in verse 4 and verse 5 that the only man qualified who is above reproach to be fit with authority over the church is one who has healthy authority over his home. So here in verse 4 and verse 5, he qualifies what healthy authority in the home looks like. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. These things should be exhibited in the home because they should be so that they can be exhibited in the church. So even though the home is in view here, I want to actually talk about what they would be, look like in practice when they are applied to the church. Okay? So do you understand what I'm doing here? Though it's talking about the home, I want to talk about the implications for this type of authority within the church. Look at it again with me, verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Healthy authority is one that has the right ability, and that ability is to lead well. And the action word that describes leadership here in verse 4 is manage. Manage is an interesting term. When I think about management, like 
based on the context of the world that I live in, I kind of think about like a dreary old man wearing the same boring old suit in a dreary old office who gives burdensome uh, responsibilities to his employees that he's not willing to even move an inch to do himself. Management kind of sounds weird, but this word that Paul is employing has a pretty dynamic and flexible use. For instance, turn your page over one page, uh, turn your Bible over, over one page to chapter 5, verse 17. In chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. In Paul's original language, manage and rule are the same word. But even the idea of ruler kind of makes me think like the, what comes to mind is like this uh, elevated man on a big mahogany desk with a big white wig and a big wooden gavel making some decisions that are completely divorced from any relationship with a person he's making judgments upon. Like, is this what ruling, managing, is this what leadership should actually be? Let me show you a couple other passages where Paul uses the same word, and I think we'll get a fuller idea of what it's supposed to look like. In Romans chapter 12, verse 8, he trans, uh, the translators take the same word and call it leadership. The one who leads should do so with zeal. I think though the uh, best translation of the term is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, where here Paul says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. That term over you is the most literal translation of Paul's word. The term is a compound word that literally means stand over. This is the responsibility, the ability that an elder must have. The ones who are entrusted with the rest of his elder team, the ones who are entrusted over his care, he needs to stand over them to be an overseer, to be watchful, to know the condition of his flock and pay attention to his herds. But then in watching and understanding the condition, he needs to give direction, like a shepherd, to lead by green pastures, still waters, to be with the sheep, even through the valley of the shadow of death, to know them by name, to call them in a way that reflects the shepherding leadership of Jesus Christ. That's the ability that a pastor needs. How does someone utilize that leadership authority well? What does it mean to lead well? Well, there's a couple things that we can surmise from this passage. Leading well means leading with conviction. Remember what Timothy's task was. Chapter one, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, stay there. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The goodness and the beauty of the household of God was threatened. He was the point of last defense. He needed to have the courage to stand and confront those people who were teaching contrary doctrines that would threaten the true gospel message and the beauty of God's house. And he needed to be able to say no. Leaders who lead with conviction need to be able to stand on not their own authority because we have none in ourselves, 
but on the authority of God's word and say, this is where we stand. There's a reactive measure of leading with conviction, but there's also a proactive. Much of the pastoral leadership and guidance through conviction is not so much the corrective aspect, but it's the proactive aspect, where people are just aren't sure where they should stand, where they should go. And a pastor needs to be able to assess and understand where someone is on the path of their spiritual journey and give them healthy direction so that they can enjoy the goodness and the beauty of God's house and the redeeming power of the gospel when they're filled with so many troubles and worries. Leading well means leading with conviction, and it also means leading with integrity. It's not enough for a man to be able to have all his theological ducks in an order if his own character is in chaos. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. The people who have authority to be able to stand before others and tell them this is what God's word said should be able to authenticate it with their lifestyle. Leading well also means leading with vigor. Remember in chapter 5, it says, uh, those who rule well should be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. Shepherding is hard work. Paul knew that very well. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, he talked about his own work ethic. And he said, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. And then he says, for this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works in me. See, it is hard work to be able to lead people with God's word. A pastor knows in their own heart how stubborn they are. A pastor knows in their own heart how selfish they are. And then to be able to help lead people also when they don't want the things that God's word wants for them is agonizing. But Paul says that he needs to pour himself out. That it's toil and it's struggle. But leading well doesn't just mean working with the labor of your own strength. Leading well means leading with faith. So the passage continues, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. A pastor understands that he needs to put all the effort he has into this. But he understands that his authority and his effort isn't, gonna what's a, uh, isn't, gonna, isn't going to be what affects change. It's the God's power. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, for the, uh, it says, for the, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Moreover, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. And this is the gift of what a healthy authority is to a church. They are a conduit of the grace of God for their people. That's the effort it takes. This is the power that enables it. But what's the aim? Like this is the what, leading well, conviction, integrity, vigor, faith, but why? What should healthy authority be aiming for if it wants to furnish God's house with goodness and beauty? Well, let's look at the passage again. It says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
The aim of a pastor in using their authority within God's church should be for the members of the church to grow towards dignified obedience in Christ. I remember a moment where I was frustrated with my children and I heard the words coming out of my mouth and I couldn't even finish my sentence. They were a little bit more whiny and complaining than normal, not, not like excessively. I was just maybe a little more agitated. And out of my mouth came the words, my job is to lead you with the Bible. Your job is to obey. You probably know what I was going to say. I was going to say me. But I couldn't even, I could, as soon as I heard the words coming out of my mouth, I couldn't finish the sentence. In front of my kids, I had to pull back and say, no, your job is to obey me in the Lord. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, isn't it? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. See, healthy authority recognize my word and my leadership is not an end. I am a means to an end. And it's the same with pastors. Scripture says that elders are entrusted with authority over members. Members are instructed in 1 Peter chapter 5 to submit to your elders. But healthy authority recognizes but my, that my authority is a means to an end. It's not an end itself. If my kids are following my leadership, if together as a plurality of elders, the church is following our leadership, then where should we be aiming them? We should be guiding them towards dignified obedience in the Lord. Dignified obedience that is satisfied through worship. Now, we want to bring your attention to something and give some clarity to it in the text. Can you look back at verse 4 with me? Notice how it says, uh, he must manage his household hell well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. It kind of sounds in the order of the translation of the ESV that the dignity is describing the way that a father manages. Different translations uh, translate it in different ways, and there's disagreements of whether it, it, the dignity is about the children's submission or whether it's about the father's leadership. My preference is to believe, based on Paul's language in the uh, original writings that dignity describes the children's submission rather than the father's uh, posture. We already know his dignity is quite well established through everything that's described in the verses prior. I think the dignity describes to the manner in which children should obey their parents. And dignified, to, be, to have dignity, essentially means the right response in the right circumstances from a heart that is secure in the Lord. The right response in the right circumstances. That's what a pastor wants to aim for with their authority in the lives of their parishioners, in members. That's what we should be aiming for as we disciple one another. It's not just consider, concerned with wrong behaviors and right behaviors. If that's all you're concerned about, you're going to make really good Pharisee kids. But dignified obedience reaches deeper 
through the behavior, into my thoughts, into my doubts. It reaches deeper into my heart, into my desires, into my fears. It reaches deeper into my sorrows, into my hopes, to the complexity of a human soul that whether that soul recognizes it or not, actually is seeking to find their significance and their dignity through a form of worship. That's really a lot of the troubles that we have in our life. We find our way into sin because we worship our way into sin. And we're naive and ignorant or stubborn to the reality that our disordered desires and our underlying beliefs influence our behaviors and our ultimate desire to find something of worth outside of me that reflects that there's worth in me. Ultimately, a pastor is looking for dignified obedience, not just for behavioral sake, but dignified obedience that comes from a satisfied heart that is secured in the worship of the Lord. Eugene Peterson describes this attitude that I want to cultivate in pastoral care to lead others to dignified worship. He says, I must be prepared to marvel. This face before me, its loveliness scored with stress, is in the image of God. This fidgety and slouching body that I am looking at is a temple of the Holy Ghost. This awkward, slightly asymmetrical assemblage of legs and arms, ears and mouths, is a part of the body of Christ. Am I ready to be amazed at what God hath wrought? Or am I industriously absorbed into pigeonholing my converse observations? My basic orientation as a pastor is that the significance of what I see before me is not what I see before me, but what Christ has said and done. Far more relevant than what I feel or think or what this person feels or thinks is what Christ has said and done. This is a person for whom Christ died. A person he loves. An awesome fact. And this is where a pastor needs to keep watch over their souls. Because if they see my job is to lead my people, I'm going to get you to dignified obedience. But if they can't see that they're looking at a soul craving for satisfaction through worship, and if they miss that ultimate end, then the goal to lead people just to dignified obedience is going to end up hurting more than helping. You're going to end up using the law as a hammer that batters rather than a foundation to build on that requires redeeming grace. St. Gregory the Great wrote about this in the early centuries of the church. He said, No one who presumes to teach an art that he has not first mastered through study. How foolish it is, therefore, for the inexperienced to assume pastoral authority when the care of souls is the art of arts. Guiding souls through the right response in the right circumstance is not an exhibition to show church members how astounding your theological expertise is. I used uh, that AI software, ChatGBT, for the first time, and I asked it some questions, Sam and Justin, that our interns are supposed to write 250-word papers on, and the response 
Gabe was like, goodness gracious, I hope my interns don't use ChatGPT because this artificial intelligence answers are actually pretty good. But prideful, arrogant people who think they deserve to lead people are just thinking of themselves when they sit down for counseling. Look at me, exhibit how wonderful my theological expertise is. You should be amazed about how smart I am. A pastor needs to take watch over their souls or else they will find their identity in their leadership and be crushed when sinful people who have been stuck in the same sin for 12 years aren't immediately changed after 90 minutes. They need to keep watch on their own souls because if we are leading people to hear and follow the voice of the good shepherd, we won't be able to do it unless we are diligently attentive to listen for it ourselves. Dignified obedience through satisfied worship. This is what healthy authority aims for. That's the how of leading people. Or excuse me, that's the why of leading people. And the what is leading well. So we lead well for dignified obedience through satisfied worship. But how should we approach it? We know that the approach is necessary, right? That's why businesses have customer service. That's why doctors are trained in bedside manner. What is the bedside manner that a pastor should have, that an elder should have with their authority? The right ability and the right aim still needs the right approach, and the right approach for pastors is found at the end of verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, How will he care for God's church? The right approach for pastors is merciful care. An interesting shift in action from ruling, managing leadership to care. What should that care look like? Paul employs a unique term here to describe care. It's different from the other terms that he uses in other passages where he tells Christians to care for one another. It's the same term, actually, that Jesus employs in Luke 10 when he talks about how the good Samaritan helps the man who was robbed and left for dead. Can we look at that together? Turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 10, and we'll see the bedside manner that an elder pastor should use with their authority to lead members towards dignified obedience. Chapter 10 of Luke, verse 33 to 35. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Merciful care, this bedside manner the pastor should have should be compassionate like the good Samaritan had. Notice some of the ways that he treated uh, the man who was Uh, near death. 
First, he had compassion. He saw this guy, and not unlike the, uh, different from the last people to who came by, he didn't just pass over a man who was dying. He stopped and did everything he can to nurse him to health. He used his own resources that he had on him to mend what was broken. And he was long-suffering with this guy. He apparently came to the limit of what he was able to do for care, to care for him. So he took him to an innkeeper who evidently could have done more than him or had more supplies than him. And he said, I, I've done all that I can. Please, you now take care of him and fit me the bill. I'll come back. I'm going to stick along and stay with him as long as it takes with whatever it takes to get him to full health. That's the kind of bedside manner approach that a elder pastor should use in their authority to care for people in the church. There's a compassion to it, but there's also a patience to it. Parenting children requires a lot of patience. Having children shows you how impatient you really are. And scripture describes all those who are in the body of Christ as just little children. Even Jesus himself says, if that you were fit to enter the kingdom, you must humble yourself and become like little children. And sometimes in care and leading other people, a pastor or an elder or a small group leader or even someone who's discipling one another might listen to someone and the troubles that they have and know exactly here's what God's word said should do and communicate it in an inspiring way that's so beautiful that someone should sign you to a book deal. And that's so clear that no one could get it wrong. And then the next time they come and talk to you about it, nothing has changed. George Darling was frustrated with his kids because they wouldn't grow up. But what he didn't understand was that he was asking his kids to be something than what they were, weren't. They were just children. And Christian, you are at a different stage in your walk with Christ than other people. You should not feel undue guilt and shame or burden that you don't have the level of peace of mind that someone else has. That you don't spend as long of time reading and praying as someone else has. That you don't have the right answers that someone else has. We're all at different stages of a maturing in Christ. And guess what? If you're a little child... You are loved by your father. An infant is no less loved by her mother than someone who's potty trained. You are dearly loved and need feel no burden. The problem, though, is that pastors become plundering pirates when they fail to be patient. Merciful care has a patience and a compassion they see that the authority they have is not their authority. It's ultimately God's authority through God's word to God's end for God's glory and the good of those whom he leads. Leading well for dignified obedience through satisfied worship with merciful care. Healthy authority is designed by God so that his house will be furnished with goodness and beauty. Do you have the faith to believe, to imagine 
how the foundation of the gospel, how a solid foundation of the gospel and healthy authority in this church can transform it to be good and beautiful. Think about the way that Jesus entered houses when he walked on earth. Jesus entered the houses and ate food with people who everyone else thought was unworthy, shameful, and cast out. Jesus entered the house of a tax collector, Zacchaeus, a lying, thieving cheat who everyone else hated and was disloyal to their nation. And when Jesus saw the faith in that little man, he said, I'm coming to your house today. And the kindness that Jesus showed to someone who everyone else hated brought this man to repentance. And this lying, thieving cheat became a hilariously generous giver. Jesus can take the wretched transgression of our heart and flip it on our head so that the culture of a church dramatically changes. Jesus entered the house of a man named Simon, a Pharisee, who really only wanted Jesus around probably because he knew Jesus was famous and having him in his house would bump his points up a little bit. And Simon, as was the custom, should have had one of his servants, or maybe he himself, come and wash Jesus' feet, as was customary. But he didn't. And then someone came to the house who should not have been there, who had no place of showing up. She's described as the woman of the city. Someone who would have been very well known by a lot of the men for certain things. But she knew that Jesus was merciful and Jesus was forgiving. And Jesus went, she went up to Jesus knowing the forgiving mercy that Christ had. And though there was no water to wash his feet and Simon was unwilling to do the dirty work to honor Jesus himself, she went up and washed his feet with her tears and dried it with her hair. And in his mind, Simon was shaming and judging this woman. But Jesus turned to this woman who everyone else would have shamed and dishonored and dignified her, forgave her. Jesus enters into houses, the house of our heart, the house of our church, and where we feel guilt-ridden, shame-driven, cast out, unworthy, unbecoming, not belonging, he welcomes and he loves. This is what God wants for his house. This is what healthy authority preserves. So if you are a man who is aspiring to the office of overseer, brother, you desire a noble thing. We need qualified men who will take up the task, who will share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We need men who will pour themselves out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of the faith of the church. But we need men who are secure in the Lord, that their own dignity and significance is found not in the task, but in their master. We need men who are strong enough to admit their weaknesses of the flesh so that they can receive the same kind of pastoral care that they know they should give to others. Friend, are you that kind of man? 
If you aspire to the office, then tell the existing elders. Find yourself as a man secure in the Lord, leading those under your authority well. But as great and as beautiful as the goodness and righteousness of God's house can be and should be through the stewardship of God, we know, we know the church's heart. And you might be here today, and it just week by week, it feels like you're climbing a mountain just to get out the door and to come to church. It's hard for you to hear about what authority can be or what the churches can, can be because it hasn't been your experience. Wounds from, of the hurt of church can take a long time to mend. And if you find yourself in that place where the goodness and beauty seems all theoretical and you don't have the faith to believe in it or trust in it or to rest in it today, ask the Lord to help your unbelief. Ask God that he can see you and that you can, that you can see yourself the same way that he sees you and that you can see the church as his beloved bride, bride even as blemished as she is. And maybe do the duty of the elders to protect and promote the foundation of the house, but in Christ, each one of you, as members, as Christians, has a duty to build on it. Are you? All of us can choose to, show, to, can choose to sow simple, simple and lavish kindness to one another. Scripture shows that we must welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us to the glory of God. Members and visitors alike, we know, pastors too, we come into church and walk through these doors with a host of troubles that can be easily masked with a simple smile, even though there's a lot of rot inside. But to actually give someone genuine, unhurried time with a listening ear and an affectionate heart and a warm smile, and a kind word and blessing in Christ can melt a hard and cold heart. Persevering, long-suffering relationships with one another is the way that we ourselves build into this culture where we can experience God's house as one furnished with the goodness and the beauty of the gospel. May the Lord bless this church to know and experience this more and more as we await the day where the whole family of faith universal will be together in unbroken, beautiful, unblemished fellowship forever in the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are far from experiencing all that you have designed for us, but I thank you, Lord, that we can begin to taste and see it in Christ through the gospel. Lord, and I thank you for the men that you have brought to serve as elders as this church. I thank you for the men that have served so faithfully and so diligently in the past as elders and now have moved on to new things. Lord God, I pray that you would bring more men who use authority in a healthy way to lead well, so that others can be guided towards dignified obedience through satisfied worship with a merciful care that reflects the mercy of Jesus Christ. God, build this church up as your house where we exhibit your love to one another 
that the world might know that you loved us and that they might know that love too. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.